Our fifth lesson comes from the letter to the Romans, and I'm going to read a few verses prior to it to give some context. This is starting in verse 14, and then you can pick up in your bulletin in verse 18. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy of comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, would you meet us here this morning? We look around our world and we see the remnants of what you pronounced as good. We see joy, we see delight, we see hints of transcendence. But we live in a world where our longings for what is true and good and lasting often go unmet. Around the world and even in our own hearts, there is division, distress, there's hunger, and sometimes hatred. And we need relief. We need to be reminded that your coming to earth wasn't just to bring feelings of joy, an image of peace, but lasting joy and true peace. And we long for that. We want that for our world and we want that for ourselves. Would you meet us through this passage and help us to believe that our hope for these things isn't misplaced? Whether we've been warmed by the closeness of friends and family this holiday season or whether we've felt desperately alone, whether we believe in the larger story that Christmas points to, or whether we have significant doubts, would you let us sense your nearness? And would you let us feel and know your longing to be in relationship to us and with us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
An article in the British uh, newspaper, The Week, a few months ago, told told the story of a very special ballet school in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And at first glance, if you go into this ballet school, it looks just like any other school. The students have leotards on, they have those really shiny shoes, they have their hair pulled back in the really tight bun, and they look just like any other ballet dancer. And when they take the stage, their performances are fairly polished. They look like they're very seasoned dancers. But the students are very different than other dancers that are aspiring to be ballet dancers. All of them are either blind, deaf, mute, or disabled in some way. How do you teach a child who has never seen an arabesque or a plie or a dancer at all to dance? How does one help a deaf child keep time to the music? Well, these are the questions that this ballet school has set out to answer. It's called the Bianchini, that's the name of the founder, Association of Ballet and Arts for the Blind, and they've taken in, peop- taken in students of all sorts of disabilities. How do they teach them? Well, blind students, for example, put a hand on their instructor's arms and legs and body as they are led through these dance positions and eventually the entire routine. And so they can feel the proper movements and then somehow reproduce them themselves on stage. The founder herself is a former professional ballerina, and she's now a physiotherapist, and she helps these students improve their posture and their, their movements, their balance, and their spatial awareness through weekly lessons, all of which are free. But more than just learning to dance, these students gain a sense of belonging. They get a sense of being able to soar beyond the limitations of their broken bodies. And they soar beyond people's perceptions of what having a disability is all about. Even their own perceptions are broken down one dance at a time. Now this story resonates with us, resonates with me, because we all share this human longing to see beauty in the midst of brokenness. We're not satisfied with the world in the way it is. We have this longing to escape or to push through our limitations, even to transcend our mortality. And all of us, if we're honest, all of us have disabilities and limitations of some sort. All of us share in this disability of mortality, that our bodies are in decline and that we're heading to death. And there's something about that that doesn't just feel sad, that doesn't just feel unfortunate, but it feels wrong. If we're paying attention, what Christmas tells us is that it is wrong, that it is wrong. It's more than sad, but God Himself says that death is an intruder, that disabilities are intruders into bodies that were meant to be beautiful and free that these things intrude into a world that He made good, despoiling it and the people that He loves. And the first thing we see in this passage is this sobering assessment of our world as it is and of ourselves as we are, that there is an overwhelming need for redemption. Now, we each have strategies for avoiding the uncomfortable, the painful, the distressing, We buy things, we dodge difficult people, 
We dive into our work. We plunge into distraction. And these strategies can keep those distressing feelings at bay for a time. And for some of us, those strategies work quite well. We can keep up the pretense for quite some time. But then we get a pink slip. Then we get a terrible diagnosis. Then we lose a loved one. And we're woken up to how twisted and broken and how unpredictable and full of suffering our world really is. Paul is turning, the Apostle Paul writing this letter, is turning a very sympathetic ear towards those who are coming up to that realization, that are under distress. He knows from personal experience that there's a time that every Christian comes to when your diversion tactics no longer work and you're forced into a corner. And in these moments, Christians are called, he's teaching us to cry, Abba, Father. Now, if you've read this passage before, you probably read it as this exultate, how would you say that in that tense? An exultation of praise, that we are in rapturous praise, but instead, it's consolation. It's crying out for relief in the midst of despair and distress. Notice the following verse. It's a consolation. This isn't a moment where the Christian is drawn into worship and rapturous praise so joyful, but it's crying out for relief. And what's the consolation? Verse 16 says, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. In your time of suffering, what Paul is saying is remember that you are God's child. This isn't teaching the Christian stiff upper lip. It's not trying to cut off your grieving by getting to the conclusion too quickly. It's not saying because you know that all things work together for the good, if you really believe that, you wouldn't be in pain, you wouldn't be grieving, you would be comforted. In other words, if you just loved Jesus more and believed his story, then you would be fine in these circumstances. It's not what he's saying. This passage is incredibly realistic. There is a cry of deep distress, and there's three groans in this passage. It doesn't short-circuit the pain. In fact, one commentator I read said that Paul is getting across what he's getting across with this word groan applied to creation and to individuals is a sign and throbbing of pain. Those who are crying, those who are groaning, those who are sighing and throbbing in pain, have come to face, come face to face, either through tragedy, through encountering something that is, that is deeply wrong, or by deep meditation, they've come to understand that they live in a world that is somehow in bondage to decay. That there's something holding the world down, that there's something holding you as a human person down physically. And this word bondage is incredibly important. Because what the person that arrives at the ER with a terrible injury understands, what a person realizes with a terrible diagnosis, with a pink slip, what they're confronted with, and maybe what they've been trying to avoid is that there's something about life that they can't control. There's something that they need that they can't provide for with their own resources. There's longings for wholeness that they can't possibly meet on their own. They realize that they're part of a creation that's in bondage. 
And not only so, in verse 23, is this true about creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. Do you see the physicality of what is being conveyed here? We, as created beings, are longing for something. We're groaning like creation for relief. If you have even a casual acquaintance with Christianity, at least how it's portrayed in our culture, this shouldn't really jive with how you've come to understand it or what you're probably familiar with. Because the Christian answer, commonly understood, is that, yeah, life is hard, but in the end, you get to go to heaven and be with Jesus. You get to go to a better place. But Paul is constantly talking about the redemption of individual people in the context of this larger redemption of all things. It's not a whisking away to a better place, but it's a liberation. It's a a remaking. And what does he say? The redemption of our bodies. That this decaying mortal shell will be renewed. That if you believe what he's saying, that your body will escape its immortality. It will be remade. There will be a world where no dancer is blind or deaf are mute, are disabled physically. They will dance with freedom and delight and joy. You see, Paul never talks about redemption without, it seems, at least thinking about the first chapters of Genesis, that something went wrong with the world, not only with our individual choices, but with everything that he has made, that it has somehow become despoiled. And redemption is setting all things to right. It's bringing relief not only to groaning souls, but to groaning bodies. Now, I want to tell you a story, and I'm not going to look very good in this story, but we're supposed to be secure in the gospel and supposed to be transparent, so I'm going to practice a little honesty here this morning. Our second child, Oliver, waited and waited and waited to be born. And so we had to schedule an induction for Katie about 10 days after his due date. And we never thought we were going to get there. But on the day, that 10th day, when the induction was scheduled, at 5 a.m., I knew the time and the hour and the place that Oliver was going to be born. And I knew that in that hospital, I wasn't going to be able to eat anything. So on the way, I stopped and picked up a breakfast sandwich. Now, I'm not going to tell you where I stopped because that would be too much honesty. But let's just say that when they were hooking Katie up to IVs and monitors and she's starving because they haven't let her eat since the night before because of the drugs that they're going to give her, I was feasting on a very unhealthy breakfast. Now, Nick was born in very different circumstances. We lived about 40 minutes from the hospital So I was ready to go. This is our first child on a minute's notice. We had our bags packed. We had the car filled with gas. We had the number of the doctor on speed dial to call him and tell him that we were coming. Everything was prepared. We were on pins and needles. When you know to the hour when a child is going to be born and you haven't been carrying this very uncomfortable child, human, inside you for nine months, you have the liberty to stop and pick up breakfast. When you're waiting, 
when you're dealing with the distress of a pregnancy, you don't make peace with the situation. You get ready. You prepare. You pray. You wonder. You hope. Will this be the day? Verse 22 says that we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Somehow creation itself is waiting eagerly to be redeemed. But more than that, that God takes on this role of an expectant parent who is making preparations to bring his child in to a whole new world. What we're told in our suffering, in our distress, is that we're not alone and that there will be relief. That God doesn't sit idly by dispassionately while his children suffer, but he's planning a new birth. That he's planning your new birth into this new spiritual reality that you now know how things work. That you now have been made right with him but also planning this entirely cosmic new birth that you get to be a part of. Verse 29 says that for those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. He's not talking here about Jesus' Christmas birth. He's talking about Jesus' resurrection birth. That He's raised again to open up a whole new world. That Jesus was raised bodily. And that is in some way indicative of the kind of body and the kind of existence that you will have if you are raised with Christ. But beyond that, that the whole world will be remade. You see, as firstborn, it doesn't simply mean that he occupies a special place of dignity, although that's absolutely true. But it's that he goes before us, that he opens up a new way for us, that he joins our future to his future. Resurrection is the commencement of the whole new world of God. You see, friends, our longings aren't misleading. They point to something. We long for relief because relief actually exists somewhere, waiting to be delivered, waiting to be given. And our longings lead us to that. We love stories of redemption because we were made for a redeemed world. We were made to occupy redeemed bodies. We were made to be redeemed. That's why we love stories of redemption. And there's reason to hope because not only was Jesus born for you, but He died for you and was resurrected for you. Verse 17, Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His sufferings the life that He lived, we live like Him in order that we may also share in His glory. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would lead us to think this way about ourselves, about others, about your world, that it is a world not simply of decay and distress, but it is a world waiting to be renewed. And if we're honest, this is so difficult to believe. It's so challenging in our year to believe that you will come and remake all things, 
And so help us in our unbelief. Help us to look to you as the advent of the relief of our, off, of our longings. Father, I pray that we would attach our longings to you and not towards what is temporal. As we come and as we confess our faith, as we partake of this meal that points to an eternal feast, I pray that you would conform us more fully to your image. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.